Hi there, I'm Jennifer Stewart. And I'm Katherine Clark, and we're so glad that you're joining us today for The Honest Talk. We're excited to be bringing you conversations with some of North America's most inspiring women, and we are thrilled to be partnering with RBC as we do so. This podcast is about leaving behind the talking points and diving into the real, authentic, and unique personal stories of our guests. Stories which we hope might influence or inspire your own journeys. So let's get right to it. So Jen, we were just mentioning in the opening that RBC is our podcast sponsor. And one of the neat things about that is that you and I get to feature some of the remarkable women who are changing the face of the banking industry in Canada. That's right. We've talked to women leading in diversity, equity and inclusion, in change management, in healthcare. And today we're talking about something that is affecting companies of all sizes, cybersecurity. Because our guest is Melissa Carvalho, RBC's Vice President of Global Cybersecurity Strategic Services. Melissa has been named one of the top 20 women in cybersecurity in Canada. She's also been named one of the Global Mail's best executives. And she's here today to talk to us not just about her accomplishments, but her journey to get to this stage of her career. Melissa, welcome to The Honest Talk. Thank you very much, Jennifer. I really appreciate you having me on today, especially because I've been listening to a number of the podcasts and um, it sounds really exciting. Oh, that's so kind. We're thrilled to have you. Melissa, look, you're working in one of the most time-sensitive, dynamic, and impactful arenas right now because our companies and institutions are facing daily, if not hourly, cyber threats. How did you get into this field at RBC? Very interesting. So I started my career wanting to be a teacher, went to school for teacher's college. And in my last year, it was the Y2K year. And I decided to join IBM because it was a great opportunity. They had um, indicated they were starting their cyber consulting practice. And I thought I could always go back into teaching, but it might be a little bit difficult to go back into cybersecurity. So that's how I started. And I guess the rest is history. I went from one organization to another, even doing my own consulting for a period of time before I finally landed at RBC. So it's fascinating that you actually trained as a teacher because I think one of the things that Jen and I always try to talk to other women about is the fact, especially young women, right, who ask for advice. The fact of the matter is that they may be studying in one field, but their career may take them on a completely different path. Certainly that was that was my experience. What was it like for you? How did you feel when you made that decision to leave behind teaching, even if you thought at the time only for a little bit, and take on this new path? And also, how did your parents feel? I don't know. I truly decided to leave teaching. So each year that um, the Ontario College of Teachers sends me a note to renew my dues, each year I have that struggle to make that decision all over again. But just to answer the question, it was a difficult decision. My parents were worried about it. They weren't sure what it was going to be like in cybersecurity. I think the hardest thing for me was the imposter syndrome feeling of thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to be good enough in this space. I don't have years and years of cyber experience. And so I think that was the hardest part. And what I see from a lot of women today is that continues to be the hardest part. When we ask women to apply for jobs, They don't have the resume of years of experience or years of education. And so that continues to be a struggle in our industry. So, Melissa, talk to me about imposter syndrome. You know, we have an article up right now on our digital platform about imposter syndrome. 
And it's the most read article on the site right now. And I think it's resonating particularly with a lot of women. How did you overcome this? And what advice do you have for other women that grapple with imposter syndrome? I don't think I've overcome it. I think I struggle with it on a regular basis. And the only advice that I can give other women is you just have to leap. You have to take that chance. Some of the most growth that I've ever done is by being in a position where I don't know everything. When I know everything, I'm very complacent. And so I I don't grow as much. But when I'm put in a situation where I don't know everything there is to know, I pay more attention, I study and I research it, and I find that I grow more as an individual. So I think that's how I end up overcoming it from one position or meeting or job to another. But I think it's something that I have to become comfortable with the discomfort. And so maybe that would be the advice that I would give. That's what I wonder about that, is that women face a lot of barriers and obstacles anyways. And so choosing to put themselves in a situation where they don't know everything and they are uncomfortable, that's something that a lot of women resist. What have you learned about yourself that has made that the right choice for you? And, you know, do you have tips that you give to other women on on how they can embrace that and approach themselves? So as I've gone through this journey, I've learned that many people, regardless of the gender, feel the exact same way. And it's really important to understand you're not alone when you go through this. One of the things that I try and remind myself each day is the five by five rule. So if it's not going to matter in five years, don't spend more than five minutes worrying about it. And I have to remind myself about that every single day because I spend a lot of time overthinking or worrying about situations. But in all honesty, five years ago, I can't remember exactly what I was worrying about. So it really shouldn't matter in the longer term. Melissa, have you faced discrimination over the course of your own career? I have faced a lot of discrimination over the course of my career, and I can never pinpoint what the discrimination is for, whether it be the fact that I'm a visible minority, the fact that I'm a female, the fact that I look young. In many of the the roles I take, they expect me to be a lot younger, but I am, in fact, a lot older. I can never pinpoint it. I've learned to embrace it. I've learned to enjoy being the underdog when I'm in situations. And it teaches me to pay attention to what people say and do and how they react to me. But yes, I have faced a lot of discrimination. I was fascinated. I watched an interview that you had given and you talked about your journey in your late 20s and you felt that you had kind of hit a ceiling. And this was the point at which you were with a company and you, I think, had thought that you would be with that company for a really long time, but you didn't feel that you were necessarily getting to move ahead in the way that you would like to. And so the decision that you ultimately made was to go out and in your terms, you described it as a contractor. I think that's like a consultant. But can you talk to us about what that was like, what that decision was like in those conversations leading up to your decision to step away from an employer and start your own thing? Yes. So when I was raised, I was raised to believe you join one organization and you stay there until you retire. So it was a very difficult decision. Yes, a contractor consultant, the terms are um, somewhat equal. And so I had to make a decision 
as to whether I wanted to stay in the company or not. The feedback I was receiving at the time were simple things. To get to the next level, I need to sell more. I need to smile more. I need to work a little bit harder than what I've been working. And so it just it became a frustrating each time I would start the year with a set of goals, hit those goals, exceed the goals, and still not get to the next level. And so I finally had to make the decision just to try it on my own. And part of the reason doing that was because somebody said to me, if you don't believe in yourself to take this leap, how do you expect the company to believe in you to take the leap? And something that really stuck with me and that almost pushed me to make the decision. I also benefited from the fact that I was financially stable. And I think that was another important factor in my decision-making process because not everybody has that luxury. I love that you talked about the need to believe in yourself and also the fact that you like being the underdog. I really resonate with that. I remember being, I think, 34 and it was my first national broadcast for a major broadcast corporation. I won't name the organization. And the male host at the time looked at me and said, well, let's see how this goes. And he had a really negative tone. And I just thought to myself, I'll show you how it's going to go. It's going to go really well. And you're going to have me back each week. But it took a long time to foster that internal voice of confidence, particularly in the face of people not necessarily believing in you. How have you built that internal voice and that self-confidence in the face of discrimination and, you know, in the face of criticism? Jennifer, I think that's a really hard thing to do. And I, I don't know that I end up spending time defending myself as much as I find defending others. I'll give you some examples. In everyday meetings, I might state something and then people nod, but a man will state it over again and people will just jump into it and say, that's a great idea. And if you think about going to maybe eight hours of meetings in a day, that tends to wear at you. I found that for me, the best way is to focus on the other women, the women I mentor, the women that I'm helping coach. And when they're in meetings and I see that happen, to be positive and to reaffirm that they stated this statement as an example. And I hope that builds my own confidence because when I'm looking to help others, I then look for it in myself because it's really hard for me to defend myself personally. Well, by doing that, you're also creating a culture where the women around the table know that you have their back too. And that's, I think, pretty, pretty crucial. And I wanted to talk like building on that. You're involved with Women in Identity, and that's a, a nonprofit that focuses on equality in the workforce. But from the things that you're describing in terms of your own experience, it does sound like we have a pretty far distance to go to actually achieve real equality in the workforce. And in fact, we also just featured um, another story on our digital platform about the fact that women continue to earn less than men in the workforce. So what are we doing wrong and what more do we need to do to do things better? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> I'm not sure I know what we're doing wrong. I have ideas on what we can do better, especially in the area of cybersecurity, because there's so many different industries out there. I think in cybersecurity, we need to change the way in which we hire and open doors for women. We can't expect women to have the years of education. Many girls drop out of cyber or tech courses at a young age. 
for whatever reason. And so they're already behind the eight ball when you think about them eventually wanting to apply to cyber attack roles. What we've been doing, at least in my team and in my group, is we've been changing the job criteria. And part of the reason for which is when you think about cybersecurity and you think about the type of attacks that we're prone to, it's really simple things where people just exploit vulnerabilities gaps in processes and simple things that are out there. And if 50% of the population is women, then we should really be hiring women to look at those processes because they might know it best. I think it's looking at those things, real life examples of how we can open opportunities that are helpful. And then through my role of women in identity, what I've noticed is if the team is diverse and the people you work with are diverse, the solutions are richer. And so by encouraging more diversity, whether it be gender, race, age, creed, it really helps to build a better set of solutions and a better society. Melissa, you're also the RBC Technology and Operations co-lead for the LGBTQ plus leadership team. And you've talked about creating an environment that lets people, you know, comfortably bring their true selves to work. What does that mean to you in practice and how do we get to that place in the workplace? For me, in practice, it means it should be irrelevant who we are, what we are, what we represent. We should look beyond that when we talk to people and when we work with people. The pandemic was very difficult for people in the LGBTQ plus community, more so than the other areas. And so if for me, becoming part of the group was a great opportunity to amplify the areas of struggles as well as the areas of opportunity. One of the things I'm really proud of is that we put our pronouns at the end of our names when we join sessions such as the WebEx or the Zoom sessions. And that was really part of helping the community to identify. So those are the little things that I think we can do, but we still have a long way to go for all diversity and inclusion. You are really involved in fostering change and encouraging people to to be comfortable in the workplace. And you've also talked to us about really remarkable journey, which has included discrimination and, you know, facing your own inner voice that is not always saying nice things. I think a lot of women are familiar with that voice. Talk to us about your why. Like when you wake up in the morning and you go to work, what's your why? What kind of an impact are you trying to make? I think it's the impacts of just feeling comfortable. I find that when I feel comfortable in what I'm doing or in a role, I really have the ability to grow and provide my ideas. But there have been so many times in my career where I haven't felt comfortable walking into a meeting, going into a presentation. A lot of my insecurities, whether it be the way people look at me, the advice I get, I still get a lot of advice today going into a meeting or into a presentation that I have delivered time and time again, which I am the subject matter expert. It's usually my male colleagues who try and provide me advice on how I should do it, even though they might have never presented on the topic before. And so the why for me is really about wanting people to feel comfortable to deliver their best. Melissa, you love to travel. Apparently, you've been to over 65 countries and all seven continents. 
how does travel fill your soul and how did being stuck at home unable to travel during the pandemic affect you? So Jennifer, I think I'm now up to 75 or 77. Oh, wow. So I've been really, okay. really traveling this year to try and make up for the pandemic. A part of the reason that I travel so much was actually uh, when I was 25 years old, my mom got sick in a very short period of time and passed away. And for me, it was really about wanting to see the world almost in a way that I feel like she's always with me. So when I travel, she gets to see it with me. But it's really opened my perspective. I see discrimination. I see people who have um, struggles. And it just gives me a broader perspective on things, especially in the type of fields that I'm in, in technology. And it really has, I guess, grown my desire, my drive to be in, in nonprofits like Women in Identity. I see a lot of discrimination with the digital identification programs they're putting out there countries like India or Kenya, where it's being used by design to exclude people, exclude people from services. And so part of what I do when I travel is really pay attention to the people and um, their struggles as well. As we get towards the end of our conversation together, we'll be really interested to know what the best piece of advice you've ever received has been. I think for me still to this day is the five by five rule. The concept of if it won't matter in five years, don't spend five minutes on it. And that's just because I tend to worry a lot and overthink things. So for me, that is the best advice because it helps me day to day in what I do. Melissa, I love that rule. And I think our guests will as well. And I just wanted to thank you for being such an impactful champion for women, for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also for sharing your time with us today on The Honest Talk. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. That's a wrap. And thank you to our wonderful listeners across Canada and around the world for joining us. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes, you can subscribe to The Honest Talk wherever you get your podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our website, thehonesttalk.ca. Finally, a big thank you to our sponsor, RBC, which offers digital-first solutions, advice, and services that go beyond banking to help you realize your true potential. And that's what this podcast is all about. You can find more info at rbc.com business. But for now, stay healthy and stay safe. And we truly look forward to having you back soon for more of The Honest Talk.